Hello, I'm Marie Sneijman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Today's topic is, this is how specialized physiotherapy can ease painful sex. My guest is Hester van Aswegen, physiotherapist with a special interest in pelvic floor dysfunction from Johannesburg. Welcome, Hester. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Maria. It's lovely to be here. Just to inform our listeners, after our conversation, Hester will give us her three best tips on dealing with pelvic floor dysfunction, and then it will be fun question time. Hester, I never actually knew about physiotherapy focusing on pelvic floor dysfunction until I did a podcast with a sexologist on painful sex. So could you please, as a bit of background, describe the pelvic floor? So the pelvic floor muscles um, that we think about are the muscles at the bottom of your pelvic basin, the pelvis being the um, part of your body um, in the center that really forms the base of our movement. So at the bottom of the pelvic floor, there's this muscle group that covers the openings. And it's a muscle group that's involved with um, bladder bowel and sexual function. So our pelvic floor muscles basically stretch from the pubic bone in front to the coccyx at the back and from the sit bone on the left to the sit bone on the right. So it literally covers the whole opening between your legs, more or less. If you were to put your hand in between your legs, your pelvic floor lies just above that. There's more than one layer of muscles. Um, The deeper layer is like a little hammock that covers that space. And then the more superficial layer is the one that contains the openings for the bladder and the bowel and in a female for the vagina to pass through. So the the pelvic floor muscles, you've got a sphincter around your bladder and vagina in front. Um, If you're a female, in a male, it's just around the bladder opening. And around the anal opening at the back there is the anal sphincter. And those sphincters are the ones that's responsible for closure around the openings to prevent you from leaking. Same sphincters are also responsible for opening and relaxing when we need to go to the toilet, to wee, or to pass a stool, or to birth a baby, or for intercourse. So um, our pelvic floors are responsible for a number of things. Like I've mentioned, because they uh, the sphincters close around the openings, they are responsible for bladder and bowel control. Um, they play a role in sexual function, and they also play an important role in stabilizing our pelvises together with the other core muscles, the abdominals and the back muscles to help us to move well. If we don't have a stable pelvis, we're going to struggle to move um, well and without pain. And then together with the core, it plays a role in breathing and control of the intra-abdominal pressure. And that is something I think that we will touch on a bit later as well on the important role of breathing and how that affects our pelvic floor muscles. Yeah. And could you describe pelvic floor dysfunction, please? Yes. So basically, pelvic floor dysfunction means that um, something is wrong in your pelvic floor 
that can then cause a problem with either the bladder or the bowel or sexual function. The most common things that we see in the pelvic floor, remember that it's a muscle, just like any other muscle. So it can either become tight or hypertonic, which means that it's um, a muscle that's so tight that it struggles to move well. It cannot really relax like it needs to, um, but it often also then cannot contract like it needs to. Um, hypertonic or tight pelvic floor muscles, you can compare them to other muscles that go into spasm, will often cause pain. Um, so they might cause pain in the area of the pelvis, or it can cause pain that radiates to other areas close by, like the back or the buttocks or even your legs. Um, yeah, so it's very often related to pain type of problems, but it can also cause problems with emptying your bladder or your bowel because those muscles don't relax as well when you go to the toilet. On the other hand, you might get um, hypotonic or weak lax muscles, and we often associate that um, with ladies who are a little bit older and who go through menopause because their muscles are not that strong anymore. And um, people often think that when women have been pregnant and they've carried a baby or had a vaginal birth, that their muscles might be lax or stretched and weak. In other words, there's obviously a lot of presentations. That's not always the case. Some women actually have tight muscles. So um, being preg pregnant does not necessarily mean that you're going to have weakness, but there's a lot of uh, changes that happen in the body when you are pregnant. Um, but I think ultimately the weaker pelvic floor type of dysfunction in most cases will present with people having problem with bladder leaking or stool leaking and pelvic organ prolapse where the bladder or the bowel or the uterus maybe sags lower down into um, the pelvic area compared to what it should be and that can then also cause a range of problems. Yeah, and you work with both men and women. Yes, um, both men and women have pelvic floors. So although I think a lot of our patients that we see are female patients, we must remember that men can also have problems either with a pelvic floor that is too tight and can they could have pain or they could have constipation. Um, we also see males often after they've had prostatectomy surgery because then they often struggle with weakness and lack of control. But yes, both populations struggle with pelvic floor dysfunction. I think it's good news for many of us like me who uh, wasn't aware of this when one thinks that there really is more help available than you know. Absolutely. And I think it's one of the things that I'm so glad that you've also invited me to do this talk because it's so important to let people know that we can treat these type of problems. People are often shy to talk about pelvic problems and they even shy to discuss it with their doctors. And if they don't go out and look for help, you know, then how must one help them? So one really wants to encourage people out there that this is a problem like any other medical problem and there is help available. Um, sometimes people walk a long road before they find the right medical professional that will um, help them because sometimes not everybody necessarily um, treats this type of problem and you even find that some medical practitioners don't really know where to refer patients to. So yeah, I hope that I can clear some of that up today. 
And I think especially now that we're coming to our topic, which is painful sex. Could you please give us a brief introduction to painful sex? So pain with sexual intercourse is one of the type of sexual dysfunctions that one might get. There's a number of problems. You know, if you think about sexual problems, it could be problems with desire or problems with arousal or problems with orgasm um, or problems with pain. And um, when people experience pain with sex, there's obviously a lot of factors that can contribute to that. In a female, you will often find that they find that penetration of the penis into the vagina is either impossible or painful to such an extent that they start avoid having intercourse because it's so uncomfortable. Um, if we think about intercourse, it should not be painful. It should actually be pleasurable. And sometimes people are just not educated um, about it and they think that pain is normal or even discomfort is normal and it is not. So you should not have any discomfort with intercourse. Um, so besides the pain that females can experience, we must acknowledge that males can also have pain with intercourse and that might be related to uh, a painful erection or Sometimes there's other problems like, like premature ejaculation or delayed ejaculation that could also be related to problems with their pelvic floors. Um, I think we must also remember that painful intercourse generally indicates tension or tightness in the pelvic floor muscles. And therefore, these people often also have pain around the area. So not only around the actual opening of the vagina, but even into the hips or into the abdominal or back or buttock regions. So we, we often see that they have tension all around that area. Um, but the, the typical um, almost definition uh, or the diagnosis that will be made if somebody struggles with intercourse, a female, will be that they have vaginismus um, or another term that you might hear is dyspareunia. Dyspareunia basically just means that it is pain with intercourse, um, whereas vaginismus is specifically pain um, with intercourse because of the tightness in the muscles, those pelvic floor muscles just being so tense or in spasm that it doesn't allow anything to really penetrate into the vagina. So do you mainly work with vaginismus? I see all types of, of pelvic pain, so not only vaginismus, but yes, in a patient who presents with uh, painful sex, most of it is probably related to vaginismus. Yes. So I think we're going to focus on that, the uh, women who experience painful sex due to vaginismus. Could you tell us what the causes are? Yes, so there can be many reasons. If we think about the pelvic floor muscles and um, where they are located in the body, we realize that these muscles play a role in a number of functions in the body. And therefore, it might predispose them to be at risk for tension and tightness. If we think about, for instance, you know, so there could be physical causes. If people have chronic ongoing infections um, in the area of the pelvis, that is going to set up a system of with this chronic inflammation, which can lead to tightness of the muscles. 
if people have a lot of pain around the area due to other causes, let's say they've got a lot of back pain or abdominal pain, um, those areas are all neighbors to your pelvic floor and they sort of feed one another. So if those muscles are chronically tight, it can aggravate tension in the pelvic floor. Obviously, an injury like a fall or trauma, falling on your coccyx, um, falling from a horse or a sport injury around that area could cause tension in the muscles. Some people might experience physical trauma there due to childbirth or surgery that's been done around the area. If people have a history of chronic inflammation, so let's say somebody like a female who's had endometriosis um, for a long period of time, that tends to feed into the area and often causes tight pelvic floor muscles. Um, obviously, if people have experienced severe trauma like abuse, whether it is physical abuse or rape, it can be a major contributing factor. And then we must not forget how stress and emotion and tension affects our pelvic floors. You know, if we have chronic tension holding patterns in our body, so let's say you um, experience a lot of stress at work or you might have stress um, due to, it doesn't really matter what the reason is, but chronic stress. What do we do with our muscles when we feel tense or stressed? We tend to tighten them. So mm -hmm. a lot of people, if you ask them, where do you feel your tension in your body, will tell you, I grind my teeth or I feel my neck and shoulders, I get headaches. And just like we hold tension in our shoulders, we can hold tension in our pelvic floor muscles. And we're just often not aware of that. So you don't necessarily get um, a spasm in your pelvic floor if you have chronic tension there. But in time, it might build up and lead to a problem where the muscles don't relax well. So we very often see that patients who present with vaginismus, if you look at their personality, they are anxious people. They tend to get stressed very easily. They are maybe A-type, you know, perfectionists. And because of that and the anxiety that they experience, they tend to hold tension in their pelvic floors. And yeah, that really plays a big role. We, we need to help them understand and make a connection that they realize, gee, I am actually tightening my pelvic floor all the time. I'm not even aware of it, but it's happening. And, and that then can really be a cause now when their pelvic floor needs to relax, whether it's for going to the toilet to wee or pass a stool or to allow sexual intercourse, that muscle struggles. So you can see that there's a lot of things that can contribute to the problem. Yes, many more than I thought. So Hester, who refers patients to you? So it could be any medical practitioner, but I think um, if a woman has a problem like this, you know, let's say you get married and now you've experienced your first sexual encounter and things are painful and it's, it's not really improving, you might mention it to your GP. So very often we see that our GPs are the first person that uh, a woman will talk to so they could refer but otherwise it's often the gynecologist because women go to gynees to have their um, annual exams and so they might mention to them that they actually feel pain with intercourse sometimes women don't even tell their doctors like going to the gynecologist and they they might actually find that they feel their um, pelvic exam from the gynae is really painful or they struggle to insert tampons. And I think those are things that will alert somebody 
that maybe there's a problem in your pelvic floor if you even if you haven't been sexually active but you feel that you really struggle to use tampons or um, that your gynae exams are sore so that already makes you think a little bit about what's happening in the pelvic floor but commonly i think the people who will refer is gps and gynecologists but it could really be any medical practitioner we sometimes also see patients from colorectal surgeons where they deal with a bowel um, and anorectal type of problems because a lot of these patients will also struggle with things like constipation and difficulty passing stool or hemorrhoids so those doctors could also refer yeah so i presume the patients you see mostly come to you because they are referred to you mostly and when you work in a team like um, i work with a sexual health team where there's a number of doctors that specialize um, most of them have got sexology backgrounds we also have psychologists on the team so that's another type of practitioner that people sometimes see with sexual problems and they could refer um, but nowadays with the internet you also find that a lot of people google mm. and they um, find that that they read up and realize that physiotherapy could be helpful and then they might contact you like that so not everybody is referred I do think it's helpful because if somebody has been seen by a medical specialist who deals with us, they could have then already had an examination to rule out that there's not an infection or there's not hormonal problems or other things going on that needs to be addressed. Yeah. And when patients come to you, if it were me, I would really feel a little out of my depth when I arrived at your practice. Yes. It's something that you often hear from patients that they like, they're not entirely sure what you expect from this pelvic physiotherapy. <laughs> um, you know, so for me, it's really important. In, in the first session, I spend a long time doing an assessment, talking to people, trying to, to get a sense of what they are feeling or experiencing. Because like I've said to you, a lot of them are really anxious individuals. So they are now extremely anxious about this whole consultation, not knowing what to expect. So I really try and um, make people comfortable and really create a safe space where we're going to work. And I, I make sure that I explain to people exactly what we're going to do. I show them a pelvic model with the muscles um, so that they really understand what we are looking at. And then I, I explain in detail what we're going to do. In a first session, I might not necessarily start um, touching them at all. We might just focus on breathing and relaxation and um, explaining the basic pelvic floor exercises to them. But it really depends on how the patient presents. Sometimes you do need to start touching them in a first session. But if we need to do anything physical, I also make sure that they really understand what to expect. So when I need to examine the pelvic floor, it does mean that I'm going to do an internal vaginal examination to see what the muscles are doing. Um, you know, any other muscle in the body, if I tell you, let's move your arm, let's bend it, let's straighten it, I can see how you move your arm. I can see how you move your foot. If I tell you to move your pelvic floor, it's a little bit diffi more difficult to see how the muscles are moving. And I can only really do a good assessment once I feel the muscles. And that does mean I need to do an internal vaginal assessment. I, I really try and make sure that people understand um, exactly what I'm going to do. And if I need to do a physical internal examination, I explain the procedure to them, I get full consent, and I will not do an examination if they are not comfortable with that. So, um, you know, patients are often quite almost afraid of that um, 
examination and what to expect, especially because they've had pain with anything mm. inserted into their vagina. But we really try and create a space where they're comfortable and safe. So a first session is really a lot of education. And our more physical type of treatment might only really start in the second session. And typically regarding vaginismus, what does treatment involve? So it can be a whole range of things. Our goal generally will be to, to teach a patient how to relax their pelvic floor muscles so that the muscles will not be so tight so that they can have pain-free intercourse. And in order to do that, you really need to look at all the different aspects and things that might be contributing to their problem. So, yes, there's generally a problem with a tight pelvic floor. So obviously we are going to work on those muscles and we are going to try and relax the muscles. And we do that with exercise and breathing, relaxation techniques, myofascial techniques, massage, trigger point releases, anything that could help um, us to relax those muscles. But besides the tight pelvic floor, like I've said to you, we often find that they've got tension in surrounding muscles. So muscles in their buttocks, in their lower back, in their inner thighs and their abdominal muscles are common contributors to the pelvic floor dysfunction. So we also need to address those muscles. So I will often do a lot of myofascial techniques and massage on the um, abdominals, on the buttock area, on the sit bone area, because that's at the back of the pelvic floor and it's often quite a tight area um, and the inner thighs. You know, so besides the physical um, massage and fascia releases that we do, um, we also do a lot of breathing. I think breathing is probably the thing that I start with, teaching them how to breathe correctly because breathing, the movement of your diaphragm directly affects the movement of your pelvic floor. So if you don't breathe well, your pelvic floor cannot breathe well. If you don't understand how to breathe to relax, you struggle to relax your pelvic floor. So it's an absolute essential component of our treatment. So then we also look at other techniques or modalities that we can use to maybe help um, relieve the pain. Some of these things can include things like um, electrical modalities like TENS or biofeedback. Um, which is modalities that we can use to help patients understand how to move their muscles correctly and relax their muscles. We can also make use of dilators, um, and that's maybe something that I should explain in a bit more detail if you wanted me to. Please. Okay. So maybe before I do that, I, before I forget, I just want to say that we really, I think one of the big things that one needs to teach a person is to how to be able to voluntarily relax their pelvic floor muscle. Because most people, when they think about their pelvic floors, think about they, they need to do kegels, they need to be able to squeeze and tighten their pelvic floors. Um, but when you have a problem with tightness, you actually need to focus on how to relax your pelvic floors. So our treatment techniques are all geared toward that. And, and we really um, spend a lot of time talking about the release of tension and how they must understand and be able to relax that muscle voluntarily. So when you squeeze and tighten and pull up your pelvic floor, you really need to feel and make sure that you are relaxing your pelvic floor. And 
that then ties in with the type of exercise that they do because a lot of people do core exercises which might increase the tension so they need to understand the relationship and how to find the balance between yes sometimes there must be tension when i work or exercise but i really need to make sure that i can relax these muscles to function better um, and not have pain with intercourse sorry i just wanted to clarify that because it's such an important part of what we try and teach people Yes, yes, and it sounds quite complicated. Yes, when people have tight pelvic floors, they really struggle to, to relax their pelvic floors. And and then when you actually do the examination and you feel the muscles, then suddenly like they realize they're like, hmm, maybe I cannot relax these muscles as well as I thought I could. Mm. So yeah, it's a big component of what we try and teach. You asked me about the dilators? Yes. Okay. So a dilator is, is really, a, I call it a tool that we use to help patients, number one, with the relaxation of the muscle and maybe the physical stretching of the pelvic floor muscle, but it's also uh, something that they can use to desensitize the area. So I must maybe just explain to you, because people might not know what a dilator is. So it's basically a cylindrical object. Um, so compare it to a candle, you know, something with that looks like a cylinder with a rounded edge. They're made of either um, silicone or medical glass, and you get different sizes. So if you, if you go and Google vaginal dilators, you will get lovely, interesting pictures about some that's really colorful. The ones that we get in South Africa are white. Um, but they basically use, so if you just think about a size one dilator, so they come in sizes. From one to five are the common ones that we use, but then you even get bigger ones. The size one is about the size of your forefinger. So that length and that width. Mm. And you basically use that dilator to insert it into the vagina and then slowly start stretching the tight muscles with that. I said to you that it's also a tool to desensitize. So if you have somebody that's really, really afraid of anything being inserted into their vagina, then they, they can't even bear the thought of a finger going into their vagina. So for that person, obviously we've done a little bit of work and we've started stretching the muscles, but to send them home and at home they then insert that dilator into the vagina um, to help the system and their brain calm down and be okay with something being inserted into the vagina so they can work with that at home. And it, it just helps them um, not only to stretch the muscles, but also allow their body not to have the fear response. Because if somebody had pain with intercourse for many years, you know, eventually their brain do not want anything to come close to their vagina. And the moment something just comes close to them, whether it's a finger or a penis, they almost shut down and they tighten the muscles even more. So they've got that whole negative feedback cycle. The more the muscles are tight, the more the pain is going to be. So it just makes the whole situation worse. So re they really have to retrain their whole system and down-regulate their nervous system um, to get them to be comfortable with insertion of something into the vagina. And the, the um, dilators are useful with that. So you start with a small one. Once that's comfortable, you move on to the bigger one. And so you progress until you can really insert the number five. So a number five dilator, you can compare to the size of an erect penis. And I know that also differs, but on average. 
So it, if you then think about, okay, I can insert this dilator into my body and there's no pain anymore, it makes you feel more comfortable um, to then attempt intercourse and know that a penis will be able to penetrate into the vagina and not be painful. So it's a tool that we use um, for that reason. And it's it's useful because somebody can go and practice at home what we've practiced in the rooms. And it gives them also a sense of achievement when they see that they can slowly but surely go from one size to the next and the next, and they can actually see that they are progressing. And this sounds like quite a long-term exercise. Uh, can you predict how long treatment will have to continue if you see someone with vaginismus? So it can vary quite a lot. You know, um, we often in the beginning will start seeing patients and I generally see my patients once a week and we will try and do four sessions more or less where we teach them all the basics. So we start with the breathing, we start with the exercises, we do the um, manual release techniques, we start with the dilators. And in those four sessions, we then really like to see progress. Um, they might not be perfect after four sessions, but a lot of them are then well on their way to managing themselves. Because I think ultimately that's also you want to teach somebody to manage themselves at home. You don't want them to come to physiotherapy forever. Yes. So if they can start doing things on their own and they feel that they're coping and they have learned how to relax their muscles, then they need less intervention from a physiotherapist. And then one sometimes, so let's say, I've seen them for four sessions, but they're still struggling a little bit. But now we can maybe start making the time um, times between our sessions a little bit longer. So instead of seeing them weekly, I might only see them every second week and then every third week. So all in all, I think on average, we probably see patients between four and eight times. Some get better quicker, some take a little bit longer. You do sometimes have a patient that needs treatment for a longer time period. And that is often the patient with a lot of other comorbidities going on, you know. So they've often had long histories of infection or endometriosis, and they've also got multiple other problems going on. And typically, if they come in, you know that the journey is going to be a little bit longer. Um, but one really tries to give them as much that they can go and do at home and can go and practice at home, um, you know, that it's not necessarily 12 or 20 sessions that I need to see them, but it might be over a time period of six months and sometimes even 12 months. So it really varies, but on average, I would say four to eight and some a little bit longer. And this may be a good time to ask uh, what you do when patients live far from centers with a specialized physio like yourself. Yeah, that's always a tricky one. You know, um, we can, to some extent, do online consultations. So you can definitely, like an evaluation session can be done online. So if somebody really cannot travel to see a physio, you could assess them online and then try and help them and start teaching them the basic breathing, maybe some stretches. I do think it is difficult to do your, your manual work online. Oh, you yes. You can try and teach a patient, but it really is hard, you know. So there, if somebody really lives far, one might suggest that they try and come in for one or two sessions that you can just at least show them the basics. Um, and also, 
if they, let's say they live a couple of hours away, then if you see them maybe to have a longer session where you work a little bit more intensely and what for other patients you might have spread over two or three sessions, you then do in one session and give them um, work to go and do at home and then they maybe only come back in a month's time. Um, it is tricky to, to manage all of these things without contact. So one must not try and make a plan there. Um, you know, unfortunately, because of the, it is a fairly specialized field, not all physiotherapists treat this type of thing. Mm. So if you have somebody that has treated other chronic pain problems before, you might be able to guide them a little bit. But for instance, in order to be able to work internally and do internal vaginal examinations, you have to have had certain postgraduate training because otherwise you are not covered by the medical legal um, insurance if you've not had that training. So you can't just hand them over to, to any other physio um, to continue with the work. The other physio might be able to do a lot of the outside work, so on the buttocks and tummy and all of those sort of things. But the more specific work related to the pelvic floor does need to happen with somebody who's been trained in the field. So it is a little bit tricky. I don't think there's a perfect answer to that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Hester, regarding vaginismus, which results do you usually see? You know, it's actually an amazing field because if you can teach people how to relax their pelvic floor muscles, how to manage their stress levels, how to breathe properly, and... Um, Yes, getting those pelvic floor muscles to move better and function better, they actually see amazing results. So you can get people that will have no pain within four to six weeks sometimes. I'm generally hesitant to give people a time period they yes. will, because they always ask her, so how long? And it might be four weeks, it might be six weeks, it might be longer, but I, I just also try and explain that to them. But in most cases, you can see really good results, especially when there's not a lot of other things going on. If somebody has had a long history with many years of problems, you know, and, and um, you just see this list of things in front of you, then you know the journey is going to be longer. Um, but even with that patient, there's always hope. And I often say to them, even if we can't um, get you 100% better, let's get you as close to that as we can. Some people do have certain things that we can't change. They might have had surgery or whatever else going on. And we kind of change that. So there might be limitations, but there's always hope. And for most people, I think they really see good results. Like with anything else, yes, sometimes you don't get the results that you would like to see. But then you really also need to go and have a look and see maybe what am I missing? What other stuff is going on? Because then they generally do have a lot of other things. Um, and maybe something that, that one needs to think of here is the um, psychological aspect of what we are treating. We shouldn't underestimate that and the effect of emotions and realizing if somebody has a history, for instance, of rape or something that's really happened in their past that's been a bad experience. You know, it's almost like your muscles, and especially something like rape, for instance, in the pelvic floor, those muscles were traumatized, but what it what happened in the past and you need to um, heal from that trauma that you've experienced and there especially the physical work is just often not enough you really need to give attention to those things in the background that your body has been dealing with and the trauma that you've experienced so a lot of the time um, women if there's something more serious like that going on might need psychological counseling or assistance. 
Um, and even sometimes if you've not had a really traumatic experience, just the fact that you've struggled with intercourse and that it's interfered with your relationship might be enough reason to actually see a counselor or a psychologist that could help, also help you with the relationship problems. So I do think the psychologist often is an important part of the team and that um, patients need to be mindful of that as well. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you if you think a mum should talk to her teenage daughter about painful sex. You know, I think it's important that we have open conversations about sex. Um, and obviously you don't want to scare a younger person about that they think this is going to be severely painful. But a lot of people actually have very warped ideas about or just the wrong idea about what to expect from a first sexual encounter. So it is important to have an, uh, a good conversation about that. And I think if we also are more open to our with our kids and teach them about the pelvic floor and how the pelvic floor works, um, it can really be helpful. Little things, like I've mentioned before, if you, as a teenager, start seeing that you struggle with some things, if people are constipated, if they often have abdominal pain, if they struggle to use tampons, um, if that first gynecological exam is really uncomfortable, you know, if you have pain with sitting, those type of things should alert you that you might have something going on in your pelvic floor and it might be necessary to have a look at that. Um, often if it's not really serious, people just think it's part of normal life when in fact it might not be. And I think unfortunately a lot of the time you will find that moms also don't have the background and really understand um, the problem, especially if they've not had the problem themselves. If somebody has had a problem, I think they are a lot more aware. But yeah, it's a. It is important that we educate our our young girls about this. You know, a lot of people, and I know um, there are physios that also go out to schools and actually just have a talk to girls about their pelvic floors, understanding how to move the muscles, understanding that you should not also always be tightening and pulling up your pelvic floor because I think unfortunately. Um, a lot of the time, we, t you know, we think that we should tighten our pelvic floors and pull it up because we must have flat stomachs or we're conscious about not having a big stomach and we think our posture should be better. Um, and it's little things like this that could also lead to a problem. So just understanding how to um, move our muscles correctly. And I think one of the other misconceptions there is that we want to strengthen our core muscles and we want to tighten our tummy muscles. So we focus a lot on strengthening exercises, which is not bad, but then we never think about the relaxation exercises. And all those intense core exercises could also affect our pelvic floors. We very often see in populations where people have done gymnastics or dances or even done a lot of Pilates um, that they will have tight pelvic floors. Why? Because if you think about your dancers, they're forever being told to pull up and tighten and hold yourself upright. So that becomes their norm, and they never relax. And it's actually interesting. We see that in the physio population as well. We are also taught to, yeah, we're not taught to tighten our pelvic floors, but it becomes a subconscious thing um, that we always tighten our pelvic floors. And we never think about the relaxation. And that could set you up for a problem. So it's important that we understand that. And if we can teach that to the younger generation, maybe one can prevent some problems. Yes, what I get from this is how the whole body works together. 
and uh, the yes. pelvic floor especially which i knew very little about how it relates to the rest of the body so so important yes yeah. no you're absolutely right it's almost the center of our core muscle function mm. so it does this yeah it really relates to many of the other things and Hester, do you find this work rewarding absolutely it's an amazing um, area to work in an amazing population to work with you know, um, yeah, I think people often know that physios can treat painful conditions, lower back pain, neck pain. Um, but yes, we can also treat painful pelvic conditions. And it, it is an amazing area to work with. Mm. You know, I think just because you often see people with really complex histories and chronic pelvic pain becomes a really debilitating condition. And there's often such a lot that we can do to help. So, yeah, no, I absolutely enjoy it. Mm. Where can listeners get more information about your work? On pelvic physiotherapy, you can actually, there's a lot of um, information on the internet. One should just always be careful and make sure that you get the right type of information because there's also a lot of misinformation. But there's very interesting things that one can go and read or one can go and watch on YouTube. You know, there's interesting work. Books, for instance, Heal Pelvic Pain or Pelvic Pain Explained, The Headache in the Pelvis are wonderful resources of information about how pelvic floor muscles can contribute to different conditions and different type of, of problems that people can experience. Um, there is on different websites, and I should actually give you a um, couple of websites maybe that you can um, link onto your your podcast afterwards maybe certainly you know but that people can go and have a look at that we know is reputable resources um i don't have a website per se i've got a facebook page that people can go and have a look at what is it called so if they google hester physio um or if they go on facebook and um, put in hester physio at hester physio they will find my uh, facebook page and there, I try and post quite a lot of things there that's related to this. So people will often see interesting studies or interesting things that other physios have done or also podcasts that people have done on the, on the subject. So they're welcome to go and have a look at that. You're also a member of the My Sexual Health team, aren't you? Yes, yes. And it's an amazing group of people to work with. There's well-qualified doctors who's all done postgraduate qualifications dealing with people with sexual problems specifically and a lot of their patient population has got sexual pain um, and then the psychologists like I've mentioned there's also um, a host of them and they're such an important part of the team um, there's obviously a whole number of physiotherapists there and then also some gynecologists dietitians um, that have a, a special interest in the field as well it's one of the things that I've learned over the years that the best way to treat patients is being involved in a multidisciplinary team. And I must say, working with it, my sexual health team has been a wonderfully enriching experience and really helps one to develop your own skills and understand how the different medical practitioners need to work together. So I strongly encourage anybody with a problem you know, they can go onto the My Sexual Health website. There's also information there, the different team members, but what can be done. So that is a good place to go for help. Yes, the, the web address is www.mysexualhealth.co.za. 
www.co.za. So one word, but I'll also attach this link to the podcast. Now for your three best tips on dealing with pelvic floor dysfunction. You know, I think um, the number one thing is, is to not believe the myths that's out there. Things that it's all in your head or things that, oh, you just need to relax or have a glass of wine. No, it is more complex than that. You need to have your muscles assessed or the condition assessed to make sure what is contributing to it. Then um, breathe. Know how to use the correct breathing pattern to help move your pelvic floor and relax your pelvic floor. I cannot stress that enough. Most people out there, when you look at their breathing patterns, breathe incorrectly and they tighten muscles instead of relax muscles. So make sure that you are taught how to breathe correctly because that not only assist in relaxing your pelvic floor, but also down-regulating your nervous system. Because in most cases, people with tight pelvic floors have an upregulated nervous system, um, and you need to down-train that. And then I think it's so essential to realize that Kegel exercises are not the answer to all types of pelvic floor problems. When we look at somebody with a tight pelvic floor, experiencing pain, they should probably not be doing traditional Kegel exercises, but rather focusing on a movement-based exercise of the pelvic floor where they think more about the relaxation. In order to know what's happening in your pelvic floor, yes, you probably need an internal vaginal assessment and somebody can, uh, like a qualified physio, can do that assessment to tell you, yes, you're moving your muscles in this way or that way, or this is what you're doing the wrong um, should you focus more on tightening or should you focus more on relaxation? So um, I think that's a really common thing that people really think that, oh, I must just be doing Kegels. And unfortunately, that's what a lot of people are told um, by the other medical health practitioners. And it's not always as simple as that. People often think they're doing Kegel exercises. And when you examine them, you're like, hmm, can you see that you are not actually doing that correctly? So it's important to be taught how to do a proper pelvic floor movement. You know, we didn't really talk about that. But yes, it's not always as simple as it sounds. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Hester. Are you ready for your fun question? Okay. <laughs> if you could feel the sun on your skin right this minute and find yourself building a sand castle, where would you be? Definitely in Mossel Bay. I love Mossel Bay. It's the place that we've gone to um, for many years on holiday. So definitely Mossel Bay on the beach. I can't think of a better place to be. That's lovely. Thank you for your time, Hester, and for giving us a bigger picture of pelvic floor dysfunction. It's such a pleasure. And it was great to be here, Mariette. And I hope that people listening to this will yeah, be inspired and know that they can go for help. Please contact a medical practitioner for help in this regard if you have a problem. And to our listeners, if you found this helpful, please share this episode with someone you care about. 
If you'd like a more fulfilling relationship with your beloved, if you wish parenting could be easier, or if you're interested in upping your emotional well-being, you're welcome to visit my website, marietsneyman.co.za, for free articles and podcast episodes. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, and the music is by Mart-Marie Sneyman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9.00.